By February 1968, every American with a radio, TV, or a daily newspaper knew about Quezon. For the so-called mainstream media of the day, the battles around Quezon were much more than a fight for a remote U.S. Marine combat base in the highlands. It was near the Laotian border, just south of the DMZ, the so-called demilitarized zone, separating the Republic of Vietnam from Communist North Vietnam. I'm Oliver North, and in this War Stories podcast, you'll learn the truth about what Quezon really was and what it wasn't from eyewitness participants. Stay with us and hear how the battle became so important to the outcome of the Vietnam War, in which I served as a U.S. Marine infantry officer. The 1968 fight to hold the Marine combat base at Quezon was important. It was, in fact, an epic battle and the scene of some of the most ferocious and controversial gunfights in the Vietnam War. The 6,000 Marines and soldiers at Quezon were surrounded by more than 20,000 North Vietnamese regulars. From January through April 1968, the Marines at Quezon endured unrelenting enemy fire, heavy casualties, and dwindling supplies of ammunition, food, and water. Overhead, B-52s dropped more tons of bombs than had been used anywhere else in history, transforming lush green mountains into a barren dust bowl. Contrary to news reports at the time, the NVA was never on the verge of overrunning the base. As you'll hear in this podcast from those who were there during that 77-day-long siege, there was never a moment when the enemy was on the verge of overrunning the base. In this War Stories podcast, come with me back to Quezon. And as we always do on War Stories, we report, you decide. Was the fight to hold Quezon worth it? Let me know on Facebook. Welcome to War Stories. This CH-46 C-Night helicopter was a lifeline for Americans fighting in Vietnam. Perhaps no place more than the siege at Quezon, the scene of one of the most ferocious battles of that long war. 6,000 Marines and soldiers were tasked with holding a remote combat base against a fierce and determined North Vietnamese Army force. Vastly outnumbered, they accomplished that mission standing firm for 77 days while enduring unrelenting enemy fire, heavy casualties, and a dwindling supply of ammunition, food, and water. It's a story I know well, because I was a rifle platoon commander on one of those hills that surrounded Quezon not long after that siege. Tonight, we'll hear from those who lived through those days of hell during the siege at Quezon. U.S. military action in Vietnam was near its peak in early 1968. American troops strength had passed the half-million mark, and the number of Americans killed in action had soared to nearly 20,000. At home, protests against the war were getting bigger and louder. American helicopters are used to transport the South Vietnam troops. The show of strength intimidates the Reds, whose specialty is harassing unarmed villagers and farmers. U.S. military involvement had begun in earnest in 1961, when President Kennedy sent 3,000 military advisors and those helicopters to the little-known Southeast Asian nation. The aim? Prevent it from falling into the hands of the communist North Vietnamese. There wasn't much question that uh, the loss of Vietnam would 
uh, portend into the loss of Southeast Asia. Colonel John Ripley would earn the Navy Cross for a now legendary act of heroism in Vietnam. In 1972, he single-handedly destroyed a key bridge and helped stop dead a major communist invasion. But in 1967, he was a Marine Rifle Company commander just south of the demilitarized zone. Overwhelmingly, a majority of the war was fought along the DMZ, understandably, the closeness to the enemy, and uh, north of Route 9, which uh, roughly paralleled the DMZ and then went all the way over to the border in Laos. Most of the action for the entire war was in this part of Vietnam, and control of Route 9 was critical. And the North Vietnamese Army would take up positions on the hills and down at the bends in the road, and they would put landmines personnel mines. They would shoot at you with RPGs. Near the western end of Route 9, not far from the Laotian border, was the base at Quezon. Describe the geography, the topography, what we were facing as, as you were leading a Marine Rifle Company out into this part of Vietnam. It's uh, generally known as, a, uh, as an airfield surrounded by uh, very dominating hills. Uh, one could even say mountains. Defending it would take a lot of Americans, mostly Marines. Tony Latour from New York City was one of them. He was a 28-year-old captain when he arrived. Graduated Villanova. Joined the Marine Corps because my uncle had been a corporal during the Battle of Okinawa in World War II. And I had his uniform in my closet as I was growing up. And it stayed there until I joined the Marine Corps. And I thought the Marines would be the way I could get to Vietnam the quickest. Dennis Mannion was just 21 when he arrived at Quezon. Mannion would serve with Kilo Company on Hill 861. Beautiful in terms of the valley and the scenery. Quezon was beautiful. At 1,500 feet elevation, it was often cloaked in misty clouds. The hills around the base were covered in dense bamboo thickets and 12-foot elephant grass. Coffee groves were tended by tribesmen known as the Bru, some of the only inhabitants of this remote Shangri-La. Controlling these hills was essential to protecting the Quezon base built in the plateau below. Besides 861, there was 861 Alpha, 881 North and South, 950 and 1015. The North Vietnamese showed how much they wanted them by launching a blistering attack in late April 67. It started when engineers assigned to Ripley's company were trying to secure Route 9. They had a 100% ambush, which is to say every man, every vehicle was lost. This was the beginning of what came to be known as the Hill Fights. They raged from April 25th to May 5th, 1967. No one, I feel certain in saying, was prepared for the ferocity, the extraordinary commitment that the enemy made to not just take the hills but to hang on to them. It was a seminal point in the war. 168 Marines were killed in action in the hill fights. Things quieted down in May, but trouble was still brewing in those rugged highlands. It seemed peaceful, but you knew that uh, after that, that uh, it could erupt uh, at any time. So there was always this apprehension. Ray Stubbe was a 29-year-old minister from Milwaukee who'd signed up as a Navy chaplain. He arrived at the Quezon Combat Base just after the hill fights ended. I'd have a little church service when the platoon would come back, and it was quiet, and, and uh, the whole company was there. And uh, then I'd 
take the next flight and the next morning to the next hill and do the same thing. General William Westmoreland, the Supreme Commander in Vietnam, had big plans for Quezon. It was very busy in the sense that they were bringing in people and supplies every day. Huge logistics requirement, almost impossible logistics requirement. Westmoreland wanted to cut North Vietnam's supply route, the Ho Chi Minh Trail, which ran through Laos into South Vietnam. For years, the enemy had used this route as an end run around the DMZ. In the fall of 67, intelligence reports indicated that the North Vietnamese Army, commanded by General Vo Nguyen Giap, was moving massive forces into the Khe San region. You knew something was coming. General Westmoreland became convinced Khe San could be the turning point in the war, and by December had a force of 6,000 troops at the remote, hard-to-supply outpost. I teach in a public high school, and there are days when everybody comes to school knowing that two kids who might have had some words over the weekend are going to have a fight in school, and the principal knows it, the administrators all know it, teachers know it, the kids know it. And sometimes they stop it, but usually they can't. And it was the same there. The whole world knew that there was this fight coming. But it just wasn't two kids in a school cafeteria. It was thousands and thousands of heavily armed people. Despite a defector's tip, the Marines are nearly overrun on a strategic hill northwest of the base as the North Vietnamese Army launches a blistering attack on Quezon. That's next on War Stories. From 1946 to 1954, the French fought a losing war in Vietnam, capped by a famous defeat at Dien Bien Phu. 3,000 French troops lost their lives in this bloody 55-day battle. And the man who defeated the French? The same general who was now fighting the Americans, General Vo Nguyen Giap. This was virtually a, uh, a ripe plum ready for picking uh, from General Giap's standpoint. The vaulted marshal of North Vietnam, the great hero. The French had nicknamed General Giap Volcano Under the Snow. His placid exterior had a fierce determination to win at any cost. You and I have talked to North Vietnamese Army officers in the aftermath of this war. It's clear to them, at least, that Giap saw this as another Dien Bien Phu type of opportunity. Oh, there's no question of that, yes. Trap the enemy in a very remote difficult to resupply location and systematically close the noose. But what he never counted on, of course, was the airstrikes. B-52s, tactical air. The U.S. had overwhelming air superiority in Vietnam, something the French had lacked. General Westmoreland personally visited the base during the buildup. He planned to use the base as bait to draw large numbers of North Vietnamese Army to it, then use his massive air power like a club to pummel them into submission, even surrender. Westmoreland, in talking with him, he told me this personally. He, he said, well, we knew they were coming, and uh, what better place to engage them than in a non-populated non area. Innovative new intelligence collection methods that allow the American command to track enemy movements more closely than ever before. Flying behind enemy lines, planes dropped camouflage sensors. It looked like a plant sticking out of the ground, which were actually antennas. And these antennas could pick up, obviously, a voice. In one case, they could distinguish human presence by urine, by uh, chemicals in the body. Uh, passing nearby. 
intelligence units could not only detect enemy movement, but actually hear their conversations. There is a recording of a conversation being had between a uh, North Vietnamese lieutenant and some of his troops uh, trying to get to one of these sensors hanging in a tree on a parachute. And the whole conversation is, uh, uh, what is this thing? And then they finally try to get their hands on it, and it explodes. Dennis Mannion was a forward observer on Hill 861. His job was to call in artillery strikes. For the first couple of weeks that January, he'd been on daily patrols off the hill. And then on about the 15th or the 16th, we received word that we weren't supposed to go outside the wire anymore. What Dennis, Ray, and the others didn't know then was that a defector had surrendered at the base that morning. He was uh, taken in and, and debriefed and uh, uh, gave the whole battle plan. He said that that night at midnight, 861 was going to get attacked, 881 South was going to get attacked at midnight, and then at 5 in the morning the base would be attacked. The defector news stunned the troops at Quezon, who were put on 100% alert. It also rocketed up the chain of command in just hours all the way to the Pentagon. During the early part of the evening of the 20th of January, you could hear them out inside the, outside the wire. You could hear them talking. You could hear the tin pingy sound when they cut the barbed wire and it sprung back in two different directions. And we threw hand grenades out there, but they didn't stop them. They kept on cutting the wire and cutting the wire. It was an eerie feeling to know that 60 or 70 feet out beyond the barbed wire in the darkness where you couldn't see them, there were people planning to come get you. And just after midnight, North Vietnamese gunners unleashed a ferocious barrage of rockets, mortars, and RPGs on the Hill 861. The promised attack was on. We were prepared for them, and yet they were still able to put scores and scores of people onto the hill going through the barbed wire. Dennis and his radio operator were moving along a trench line when they reached a Marine gunner. He said, well, you're going to have to get by that guy in the trench. And I said, what do you mean? He said, there's a North Vietnamese soldier laying in the trench right outside the bunker. The enemy soldier was throwing grenades. The darkness was impenetrable. They couldn't see him at all. They thought he was probably wounded. And I th thought for a second, maybe we can just get by him and just go by. But I couldn't take that chance. So I took a 45 and I stuck it out in the darkness. And then I put my left hand up until I felt the, the, the top of his head. And when I touched his head, his head lifted up, as I knew it would, and I just took my hand away and pulled the trigger until the 45 was empty, and then I knew he wasn't alive anymore. And then we said goodbye to the machine gunner and moved our way up the trench line to where the shells were landing. That's how we got by him. Still haunts me. By dawn, Kilo Company had toughed it out and driven the enemy from the hill. But there was no time for rest or celebration. Just after 5.30 a.m., the North Vietnamese resumed the attack, this time targeting the combat base. Boom. You know, it's just all of a sudden, it just boom, and light. Uh, to the one side of Charlie Med was what we call the LSU, the Logistics Supp uh, um, Supply uh, Unit, which had sandbags, sea rations, um, all that kind of stuff, and it was in flames. You could hear the big guns over in Laos and, and a mountain called Korok open up. And the base started taking heavy incoming. And all of a sudden, this huge explosion. So they had hit the ammo dump. And it, it wasn't one explosion. This was like 
maybe two hours of explosions. At the same time, the village of Quezon, home to about 1,200 South Vietnamese civilians, came under attack. Just south of the base. Just south of the base, maybe four miles south. The Marines and soldiers didn't know it then, but the grueling 77-day siege of Quezon had begun. From then on, everyone and everything at the base would be a target. Getting in fresh troops and supplies could only be accomplished with C-130s, C-123s, or choppers forced to fly through a barrage of fire. One of those fresh troops was Tony Latour. It was me and three 500-gallon bladders of fuel that were chained down on the inside of the aircraft. Latour hitched a ride on one of the C-130s that supplied the base. And finally, the crew chief came over to me and yelled in my ear, Quezon's under attack again. We're not stopping. We're dropping the ramp. Did a quick touch. He dropped the ramp, let go of the dogging chains. The bladder shot out of the rear of the aircraft. I had a uh, Willie Peter bag, a water protective bag with all my personal belongings and my pack. I threw them out. I jumped out the back, rolled, and... I was looking at a wooden sign that Marines had made that said, Welcome to the Quezon Combat Base. Living under constant enemy bombardment, the Marines move underground. Life in the bunkers and trenches at Quezon is next on War Stories, here on Fox News Channel. General Westmoreland was confident and morale at the base was high, but the troops there knew the cost of victory could well be paid in their blood. I had full confidence that we were going to win the Battle of Quezon because we had the means. It wasn't that I thought I was going to die. I kind of knew I was going to die. I just I thought it would happen. And for some reason, just per se, it didn't. Well, our, our mission had, had been early on uh, at any fire base was to provide uh, uh, perimeter security, uh, particularly during the evening. During the day, normally, we were out on the roads. First Lieutenant Bruce Geiger from New Jersey was a 23-year-old Army platoon leader attached to the 26th Marines. He had the heaviest armor at the base. We had two dusters, uh, which were uh, twin 40-millimeter cannons mounted in an open turret on a light tank chassis. It was a Walker Bulldog tank. And, uh, and in addition, we had two quad 50s, which were four 50 caliber machine guns. Dug into bunkers and hidden beneath the triple canopy foliage surrounding the base was the largest and best equipped force ever mustered by the enemy. You were exposed. If you were above ground, you were a target. Enemy incoming was constant and deadly. Some days, a thousand rounds or more rained down on the base. Incoming uh, would happen and uh, people would flop down for a few seconds and then just get up. If you've seen the TV show MASH, when Radar would get on the loudspeaker and announce the movie for tonight, we had that system set up. But this system was used to save lives. And typically the rounds were coming from a place called Korok. And the Marine would get on the horn and start saying, Artie, 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 Korok. And everybody went into the first hole they could find. My, my troops used to tease me all the time. They used to kid me about being my uniform was always, always dirty. I had red clay all over the front of my uniform. As I dive on the ground in a, in a heartbeat, I could, I could go from vertical to, to prone in, in a millisecond. 
Life on the base was lived undercover. There was no safe place at Quezon. We all knew this by the time the siege started. I mean, there'd be craters you could stand in and your head would be below the surface of the ground. Right, a bunker which was covered in, in aircraft aluminum and had sandbags on top and another layer of aircraft matting. And uh, so it was a pretty secure bunker. It probably could have taken a direct hit from small artillery round. The troops spent hours and hours digging in deeper and deeper. Trenches, bunkers, some 18 feet deep. Every weapon had to be dug in. That they learned the hard way. We had a 106 recoilless rifle that was built on the edge of a 2,000-pound bomb crater, and it just sat up there like a sore thumb. And the night we got overrun on the 21st there, 20th, 21st, one of the first North Vietnamese soldiers who survived the wire ran into that gun position, probably with dynamite on his back, and he blew himself up, and he blew up not only himself, but he blew up the entire gun position. He just wrecked it. For the men fighting for their lives at Quezon, the C-130 Hercules cargo planes were their lifeline. But it was getting harder and harder to keep that lifeline open. You could count on incoming picking up as soon as the aircraft were approaching. It just, you could set your clock by it. On February 10th, the Marines' luck ran out. A C-130 Hercules carrying fuel supplies was hit by mortar fire and burst into flames. Six aboard died in the blazing inferno. Afterward, General Westmoreland banned C-130 landings, and the Marines would have to find other ways to get resupplied. There, there were a number of aircraft lost at Quezon, right there on that runway, mm-hmm. CH-53 helicopter, C-130. How did you put a, how'd you deal with that? You get used to working in a situation that is sometimes devoid of sense. It's a little bit of survival, but it's everybody working towards a common goal. There was just grit, determination. It wasn't a fun place, but you put up with it and you dealt with it. How helicopters just like this one are used to keep Marines alive in the hills surrounding Quezon. Next on War Stories. Supply was a problem because the aircraft couldn't land much of the time. They stopped flying C-130s in there. It was just too dangerous. Uh, even the C-123s, which were a little bit you know, faster getting in and out, um, weren't able to come in. None of Quezon's weapons could reach the long-range enemy artillery targeting the base. Those guns were far away on sheer stone cliffs on a mountain in Laos called Korak. It even survived blistering aerial bombardment. Under General Giap and his North Vietnamese, the guns were wheeled into caves when they weren't being used. He knew if he could interdict the airfield, therefore turn off aerial resupply, that he could eventually achieve what he did at Dinh The base commander, Colonel David Lowndes of the 26th Marines, refused to let that happen. He's one of my heroes. Tony Latour was Colonel Lowndes' regimental adjutant. David Lowndes was out and about the area not in a bunker, every day of the siege. Visiting troops, visiting Marines, being exposed, showing himself as a true leader. David Lowndes was a great Marine. Every day, Lowndes had to get in hundreds of tons of food, medicine, and most importantly, ammunition to keep his 6,000 men alive. And so the Marines had to find a way to get supplies without landing the planes. They developed a system called LAPES, Low Altitude Parachute Extraction. 
where the supplies would be palletized and placed inside a 130 aircraft. A thing where the planes would come low and uh, extract a, lo a load on pallets with a parachute attached to slow it up. The air would fill the canopy and yank the supplies right out of the back end of the aircraft. And it would drag this pallet of, of whatever supplies off the rollers right onto the runway at, you know, at 100 miles an hour. And they'd slide down the runway. And in that case, you got all of those supplies safely onto the airfield. It was a great innovation. But it was hard to pull off every day, so most of the supplies were dropped by more traditional means. Flying C-130s over the base and dropping them with parachutes, which was pretty successful. And, you know, probably 50% or 75% of what they dropped would land close enough to get. Day after day, C-130s would appear briefly out of the clouds, quickly disgorge their loads, and disappear again. Braving enemy fire, troops would slip out of the base to recover the supplies or what survived the plunge. Probably some of the greatest credit goes to these doty, hard-bitten helicopter pilots who uh, landed in terrible conditions on those hills uh, and resupplied uh, our Marines there. Getting supplies to the hills, including 881 North and South and 861, where Dennis and hundreds of other Marines were based, was toughest of all. Only helicopters could make those trips. The only reason they would ever land was to bring people onto the hill or take people off. Otherwise, they brought supplies and nets hanging below the choppers. They would just come in, get a couple feet above the ground with the net, get the release hook, and the thing would plunge down to the ground and off they'd go. Still, food and water were anything but plentiful. As the monsoon begins to settle in, it's got to affect the resupply. How did the Marines adjust to that? Like Marines always have innovation. Food became an interesting exercise whenever you could eat and found time to eat. People throwing sea rations together, making a mulligan stew. We're down to two sea rations a day. We're supposed to have three. And, and, and because of the calories we're expending, we should probably have five. We never starved up there, but we were on a pretty small diet in terms of the amount of food we got. I went from something like 190 to 130 and I went from a 34 waist to a 28. I'd give him my right arm, I think, some days for a cheeseburger and a, and a chocolate milkshake. Especially caisson water. Water was a prized commodity. And we, we might go three days without water. And men will, will uh, have a canteen and they'll, they'll give away, they'll share, and even give away the last drops of water to their buddy. And then there were the rats. Every day you would come back to your bunker a 12-foot cube underground, no lights, no electricity, no running water, and no bathrooms. And you would live with the rats. I mean, rats that were on average the size of a, a large rabbit or a, or a good-sized cat. Um, and uh, it, was, it was pretty, they were always, always in the bunkers. They lived there. Back in Washington, President Johnson was so concerned about Quezon, he'd had a model built of it and put in the White House Situation Room. He used it daily to review the situation with his aides. Johnson knew he couldn't afford a disaster like the French loss at Dien Bien Phu. To destroy the enemy surrounding Quezon, General Westmoreland unleashed his fleet of deadly B-52s, each capable of dropping 60,000 pounds. It was called Operation Niagara, a raging torrent of bombs falling on the North Vietnamese from unseen planes seven miles above. Day in and day out went on. More tonnage was dropped in Quezon than any single place 
in the history of warfare. They called it carpet bombing because it literally laid a carpet of devastation uh, anywhere from a, a half mile wide to, to a mile long, and anything that was on the ground had to be destroyed. What was the effect on morale as those raids took place? You'd hear the Marines cheering on top of their bunkers, get some, typically with their covers off, looking scraggly, looking beat up, looking worn, looking unshaven, looking unkempt. It felt like Robert Duvall in Apocalypse Now. It felt like victory. You know, he talked about napalm. We talked about B-52 strikes. But the North Vietnamese refused to give up. Coming up next, propaganda films show how they trained their people to kill Americans. That's ahead on War Stories. In late January of 68, the siege at Quezon was big news back home. It was in the newspapers and on television every night. But while the world was watching the battle at Quezon, General Giap's North Vietnamese Army and the guerrilla fighters known as the Viet Cong were slipping into position elsewhere. And then all of a sudden, Tet broke out. Suddenly, on January 31st, the NVA and Viet Cong simultaneously attacked city after city across South Vietnam, more than 100 in all. It became known as the Tet Offensive because it took place during Tet, Vietnam's New Year's holiday, traditionally a time of truce. It caught the South Vietnamese and their American defenders completely by surprise. The Viet Cong were eventually beaten back and lost 37,000 of their troops, but it was a hollow victory for America. It came at the cost of 2,500 American lives. It also seriously eroded public support for the war back home. At the same time, the North Vietnamese leaders were vowing to fight to the death and keep up the pressure to bleed Americans out of their country. Squad and platoon leaders wear banners proclaiming their determination to avenge the bombings of the North. These films were captured by the 173rd Airborne Brigade in Vietnam. They were shown to American troops to help them better understand the indoctrination of North Vietnamese troops as well as their tactics. The Viet Cong attack is against an American armored personnel carrier. The vehicle is destroyed and several members of its crew are killed. You could feel the heat of that napalm. It was scorching. It would singe your eyebrows. It was so hot. Uh, oftentimes, the close-in uh, uh, high-explosive bombs uh, would throw dirt and shrapnel inside the perimeter. The North Vietnamese refused to let up at Quezon despite their losses during the Tet Offensive. Air Force, Marine, and Navy fighter bombers bombed and strafed the enemy just outside the base perimeter all through February and March. This might sound uh, um, ghastly, but there's something beautiful about a napalm strike. It's what you would call sublime, uh, which is like standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon, where it's beauty and danger mixed. The B-52s kept up their punishing strikes around the clock. And we started pouring it on. The bombs fell all the months of February and all the months of March. General Westmoreland was determined not to lose Quezon after being caught by surprise during the Tet Offensive. He goes, you go in the Quezon, your crews go in the Quezon. I need you in another track to relieve a battery out there, right? And uh, uh, you're going to start on with Operation Pegasus. 21-year-old Army Sergeant Joe Bellardo from New Jersey became part of Operation Pegasus, the massive 30,000-man relief operation for Quezon. He drove a duster 
the M42A, like that commanded by Bruce Geiger at the base. They'd have to reopen Route 9 to get there. We'd already been in fierce ambushes along the way. You see all these Marines who were trying to get through, blowing off the same type of truck in front of you, laying on the road, and every time they would get up to run, they would step on an anti-personnel mine, and the mine would send them flying in the airs, and their arms and legs would, would uh, be gone. And uh, it would build, and build, and then, excuse me, you get emotional when you think about it. Operation Pegasus was a massive show of force. They came with more equipment than the whole 3rd Marine Division had. It was amazing the amount of military supplies, personnel, and helicopters they had. They massed near Camp Carroll, well to the east of Quezon. Meanwhile, conditions around the base remained stark. I took that shower on the last week of November in 67, and the next time that I ever saw a bar of soap, or washed any part of my body was at the end of April in 68. We'd get anywhere from three to four hours sleep in a day, literally working 18 to 20 hours a day. There was just so much to do. The ordeal creates a special camaraderie among the men who were there. It's a kind of uh, bonding that, that you just don't have under any other circumstances. These are people that, like I say, would go out during incoming to rescue somebody who's wounded, knowing that they could very well be wounded or even kill themselves. And you want your friends to survive. And you will do anything for them as they would do for you to get them out of there. You would give up to your life. But I, no question, no question. March 13th, the Marines spend a quiet but tense day. We had been on 100% alert because it was right around the anniversary of Dien Bien Phu. And there were all kinds of rumors that they were going to try and make one large push and try and overrun the base. But the NVA don't launch their long-awaited attack. March 22nd, the NVA unleashed the, the single biggest day bombardment of, of the base. Did anybody have a sense, here they come, this is it? No. This is just one bad day. It was almost a self-pride. We set a new record today. They threw 1,500 rounds at us. It was that kind of reaction. But there were heavy casualties. Bruce Geiger was very nearly one of them. A rocket came in just right in front of me and, and, uh, and hit, hit the, uh, the Charlie, uh, Charlie Company CP bunker, just a dead direct hit, and blew up right in front of me. And uh, there were, it must have been about 12 or 15 guys in that bunker. I remember getting knocked off my feet two or three times running across the runway by, by the incoming round. And I was just pretty much in shock myself but I ran across the runway to, to, to call for some corpsmen. They ended up getting all but you know, five guys out there. Five guys died in that bunker that night, including the, the company commander, who'd only been there one month. I shall not see, and I will not accept, the nomination of my party for another term as your president. March 31st, a major turning point. With the war more unpopular than ever back home, President Johnson announces the end of his candidacy for re-election and the beginning of the end of U.S. involvement in Vietnam. I turned to the guys in the bunker and I said, he's getting out. He's not running anymore. He's, he's getting out. If he's getting out, what are we doing here? The base of Quezon is destroyed, but not by enemy forces. That's next on War Stories. Operation Pegasus was named for the winged horse of mythology, appropriate in that the relief operation itself was something of a myth. 
The show of force was huge, but unnecessary, done mostly for the cameras. The majority of North Vietnamese Army troops had already withdrawn. At what point were you aware that there was a big, quote, relief column? That's how it was built back in the States. We thought it was semi-humorous, this idea that the relief column was going to come to get us. I don't think there was any sense of uh, being rescued. None at all. I mean, there was a sense that we gutted it out and, uh, and uh, broke the back of the North Vietnamese. Pegasus pushed down Route 9 largely unopposed and on April 8th reached the combat base. And the sky was black with Army helicopters. I had never seen so many helicopters in the air at one time in my life. The siege was declared officially over, and the numbers were staggering. Marine and Army artillery had fired more than 159,000 shells. Air Force, Navy, and Marine fighter bombers had made more than 21,000 attacks, and B-52s had dropped 150 million pounds of bombs in 2,602 sorties. When the Pegasus troops arrived, the base gates opened for the first time in 77 days. As he left the base, Bruce Geiger was stunned to see the surreal landscape around him. The area for a solid five miles was pretty much obliterated. There was no, no vegetation. This was jungle in the mountains. This was pretty heavily <clears throat> vegetated area before Quezon. God had created this beautiful space, and man had really screwed it up. Quezon remains shrouded in controversy. Officially, 297 troops were killed in action, most of them Marines. But some counts are significantly higher. The official number of NVA dead was 1,600, but some experts believe it was up to 10 times that number. In June, just weeks after the siege was broken, the base was quietly abandoned. And it was really, to this day, a hard pill to swallow. From the day I heard that the Quezon combat base had been abandoned, the war was over for me. It seemed like all that death and all that destruction and all that pain and all that turmoil for nothing. The troops were told to destroy the base, to leave nothing behind for the enemy. It slowly took everything apart. Everything was plowed flat by these big bulldozers they had there. Bunkers that were too big to take apart were blown up. So we put plastic explosives, which were called C4, in the bunker, and, uh, and we all put our hand on top of the plunger, and we blew, blew the bunker. Helicopters removed the damaged aircraft. The runway was torn up. And in a few short weeks, the base was entirely gutted. And then finally, there was no place for us to stay. There was no bunkers. We started living under the, under the duster. We dug each of us our own little personal bunker. We used to call them the graves. The Marines did return to Quezon later in the war. I commanded a rifle platoon there on Hill 950 in 1969. But it was never again manned as it had been in 1968. One Marine's emotional trek back to the hills of Quezon three decades later, just ahead on War Stories. War changes you forever. It's hard to believe that anyone who's ever gone to one would ever be eager to go back. But Vietnam has drawn us back, perhaps because so many of the wounds this war opened have never closed. I returned in 1993 to try to see this land that had taken so many American lives in a different light. And last year, Kilo Company's Dennis Mannion returned to the hill where he thought 
his life might end 33 years ago. I picked the exact same route that Kilo Company had taken back in 1967 to get on to 861. I stood right in the hole in the ground that used to be my bunker. I cut down all the bushes and plants that were growing in the bunker. And um, it was really pretty incredible, really, to stand there and think of what had happened all those years before in that place. I was the only person up there. Total silence, no sound except the wind. I brought with me pieces of blessed palm from my church, and I wrote the names of all the guys from Kilo Company who had been killed. So I stood at the top right by my bunker, and I took out the pieces of blessed palm, and I said, in Our Father, and a Hail Mary, and then I read the person's name, and I let these little pieces go one at a time, 28 of them or 29 of them, into the wind. I bend down, I, I get my pack, and we put it on, and then I look back up, and I see, in the mist, standing at the top of the hill, I see about, I don't know, 15, 20 figures, spirits, in flak jackets and helmets. And I looked away twice, and I blinked, and I fiddled with my pack, and every time I looked back up, they were still standing there. And I asked them to watch over my family, and take care of my friends, and to hang together and then I'd catch up with them someday and then I finished and they were still standing there in the mist and the rain was kind of sifting in and out and their ponchos were moving in the wind a little bit I bent down and I picked up my backpack and I put it on and I saluted one time like that and then I turned around and I walked across the landing zone and I never looked back and now it's a year later and I can't forget it For the United States, Quezon was a turning point in the Vietnam War. For all who served there, it was a turning point in their lives. Those 77 days are indelibly etched in their minds, as are the images of their countrymen who gave their lives defending that remote patch of land in the Vietnamese highlands. Theirs was a war story that deserved to be told. I'm Oliver North for War Stories. Good night. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.